Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 195, Fist of Legend, part 2. Before we get started, well, I just want to acknowledge that this is episode 195. We've made it quite a long way in this series, and that's really awesome. It also means that it's been 100 episodes, or a little over two years at this point, since we last did a question and answer episode, so that's a tradition I would like to revive. So, five episodes from now, for episode 200, I'll be taking listener-submitted questions and doing my best to answer them for the entire episode. So if you've got anything you've been meaning to ask me about Japan, about graduate school, about teaching high school, recording a podcast, or something else, feel free to send a question over. And for episode 200, I'll answer it. So, let's get to the show. So at the risk of belaboring something I think we've gone over plenty, but which I think it's really important to be clear about, the collapse of the Tokugawa shogunate, the Meiji Restoration, and the end of samurai rule in Japan created a dramatic series of changes that revolutionized life in Japan. If you're ranking the moments of real epochal change in Japan, I think the natural top three would be the Meiji Restoration, the Taika reforms of 645, and the U.S. occupation. And while the impact of each was relative to the social standing of those involved, for example, I think the occupation was a bigger deal than the Meiji Restoration for rural peasants because of land reform, I also think it's hard to deny that all three represent real moments of tremendous upheaval all of which is a rather circuitous way of setting up this basic point. The Meiji Restoration in particular confronted practitioners of Japan's martial traditions with a very stark choice. During the Tokugawa period, of course, less and less emphasis had been placed on raw martial prowess. The way to get ahead in life was no longer stacking up a big pile of heads in front of your lord, but demonstrating intellectual and bureaucratic talent. Yet this did not so much fundamentally challenge the warrior education of Japan as modify it. After all, the virtues needed for a good warrior, discipline, a quick mind, a willingness to learn from mistakes, they also make for a good student. Rather than challenging Japan's martial traditions, Confucianism blended with them, as we discussed last time. The ethos of the age became bunburyodo, that the sword and the brush were one and the same. Now, perhaps all this fancy book learning would have come across as a bit wussy in the eyes of warriors from the Sengoku period, but it worked well enough. Western empires, however, presented a fundamentally different challenge. Western Enlightenment thought was, in some ways, not entirely opposed to Confucianism. For example, both share an emphasis on human intellect and reason. However, the scientific method in particular undercut the comprehensive nature of Confucian philosophy, which had served as a comprehensive explanation for the entire world in East Asia. The way politics worked, the meaning of social hierarchies, how governments were supposed to be constituted and operate. In the same way that the late medieval Catholic Church provided an all-encompassing vision of what the world was supposed to be, Confucianism had provided an all-encompassing vision of what the world was supposed to be, but that all-encompassing philosophy was undermined by Western knowledge. 
the Confucian understanding of the physical world was undermined. There were not five elements, but sixty. The Confucian understanding of politics was undermined by vibrant democracies like France or the United States, which was anathema to the highly structured and tightly controlled politics promoted by Confucianism. And then, to add to this challenge, there were the weapons. The old martial traditions were utterly ineffective at challenging rifles that could tear a formation apart from hundreds of yards away, not to mention artillery with ranges that could be measured in kilometers. So how did Japan's martial traditions survive that brutal transition to modernity? How did they become the things we recognize today? The simple answer, to be frank, is that many of them did not. When the feudal domains were abolished by imperial order in 1872, many of the domain schools which employed the instructors who had kept those schools open were out of a job. It wasn't like anybody else was going to pay them to learn how to swing a sword or use a bow and arrow. In the immediate aftermath of the Meiji Restoration, Japan went through a sort of westernization craze. Literally everything associated with the past came to be viewed with suspicion at best. More commonly, the reaction was outright rejection. This was the time, for example, when Japanese students told foreign instructors, we have no history, our history starts now. It's the time when the Japanese government built a hall for entertaining Western guests, the Rokumeikan, without a single Japanese architectural element or touch anywhere in it. When buildings across the earthquake-prone city of Tokyo were built from brick because, even though that's pretty dangerous, it's how civilized Westerners build cities. You get the idea. Nobody was going to pay someone else to teach them how to use a spear or put someone in a joint lock in this kind of environment. Just take up boxing or shoot the bastard instead. Confronted with the choice between abandoning their professions for something profitable and attempting to stubbornly hang on, most chose the former. After all, pride in tradition is great, but it doesn't put food on the table. And so across Japan, schools with histories going back hundreds of years closed their doors for good. And of course, we shouldn't forget that the same changes which closed some schools for economic reasons flat out destroyed others. Though the Boshin War was far from the most destructive conflict in Japanese history, it did result in the physical devastation of domains across the country, particularly in the northern regions of Japan. So for about a decade and a half, Japan's martial traditions basically went underground. There were attempts at revivals here and there. Witness, for example, Sakakibara Kenkichi, the 14th headmaster of the Jikishinkage School of Swordsmanship. A loyal retainer of the Tokugawa shoguns, Sakakibara had found himself out of work after the end of the shogunate. He tried his hand at a few different jobs, most notably working for the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department, which employed a very large number of former samurai. Ultimately, however, he felt too conflicted about serving the government which had deposed his lord. So he left his job and lived in poverty. In fact, he was so deeply in debt that he couldn't even afford a home and had to beg for help to afford one from his wife's uncle and the savior of Tokyo, Katsukaishu. In 1873, Sakakibara decided to try and raise some money by putting on a swordsmanship tournament. His basic reasoning was pretty straightforward. 
a very different martial tradition, sumo, was very popular among the masses as entertainment. If people will pay to watch that, who's to say they won't pay to watch people hit each other with pretend swords? Sumo, incidentally, was occasionally practiced by samurai, but was always more closely associated with Shinto performance. Initially, sumo matches took place on the grounds of Shinto shrines, and the origins of sumo lie in Shinto worship and commemoration of parts of Shinto mythology, not in the battlefield traditions of the samurai. Also, sumo had a popular following from the Edo period as a sport. As a result, it was not as badly affected by the changes of the Meiji era as the samurai martial traditions. Sakakibara borrowed heavily from sumo in setting up the rules for his tournaments. Sumo matches are always sudden death. The first person to knock over the opponent or force them out of the ring wins. So Sakakibara's matches would also be sudden death. A single good strike would be enough to end the match. Since that meant quite a bit was riding on whether individual strikes were good or not, Sakakibara borrowed another rule from sumo and added an independent referee. Sakakibara made one further addition as well. A samurai with years of training could probably watch one of these matches and follow what was going on, but non-samurai, whose money in the end spent just as well as their theoretical betters, wouldn't. So Sakakibara added color commentators whose job was to explain what was happening to the crowd. The matches proved surprisingly popular, actually, if only because of their novelty, and Sakakibara was able to incorporate a small company with the goal of putting them on regularly. Unfortunately, that same popularity ended up drawing the attention of the long arm of the law for reasons that are worth mentioning. You see, in the late Tokugawa period, the old domain academies had become hotbeds of political dissent, which is natural when you consider that they were full of samurai who had strong opinions about the problems presented by the West and the Tokugawa attempts to solve it, and to boot, all those samurai were young men and hot-headed in the way that young men tend to be. Many future Meiji leaders became politically active and radicalized while studying at their domain academies. Others began to develop contacts with radicalized samurai outside of their own domains via martial academies, especially those in Edo, where samurai from all over Japan mingled freely and, surprise surprise, came to discover that they shared a few opinions about precisely how bad Tokugawa rule was. The new Meiji government, therefore, was highly sensitive to the potential for political radicalization via martial arts schools, which could attract former members of the samurai class. Sakakibara, after all, was a former Tokugawa retainer. He could be using these demonstrations as a way to reconnect with other Tokugawa sympathizers. When a rebellion against the government broke out in Saga on the island of Kyushu in 1874, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police seized on the chance to move in and shut Sakakibara down. Today, Sakakibara Kenkichi is viewed as one of the founders of modern kendo. In particular, the creation of tournaments and the addition of independent referees are often credited to him. That was cold comfort to him, though. Later in life, he came to regret the whole idea, thinking that it cheapened the martial traditions of the samurai. Now, speaking of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police who shut Sakakibara down, 
they were one of the few organizations which provided gainful employment to former practitioners of the samurai martial traditions. Japan's regulations on civilian firearm ownership have always been very tight, and remain that way to this day, so most violent crime is perpetrated the old-fashioned way. As a result, cops needed to be very proficient in some basic close combat skills. And hey, wouldn't you know it, in the 1870s, there's a very large population of unemployed folks with those very skills. The vast majority of the early Tokyo Metropolitan Police were former samurai who traded in the katana for a thick wooden walking stick. Now, cracking someone on the head with one of those probably won't kill them, but it will definitely make them reconsider their life choices. The Tokyo Metro Police were actually so militarized by the inclusion of samurai in their ranks that during the Satsuma Rebellion, when the government was particularly desperate for troops to take on Saigo Takamori, and running short of bullets to arm those troops with, parts of that police force were mobilized to go to Kyushu and fight. Considering that a lot of Tokyo PD members were former Tokugawa samurai, being sent off to fight the man who'd cost them their former jobs, I'm sure they didn't mind too much. Police were also expected to maintain facility in the grapples, throws, and arm locks of the samurai tradition. Though those maneuvers are designed to throw armored enemies to the ground, it turns out they work quite well for subduing suspects. While the number of commoners in the Tokyo PD increased over time, that early profusion of samurai set the culture for the organization and for the national police to this day. Today, the Tokyo Police Academy still includes courses in Judo and in Kendo, and patrol officers still carry those wooden walking sticks, and they'll still wallop you with one pretty good. Fortunately, in this case, I am not speaking from experience. Still, cases like the Tokyo Police Department were more the exception than the rule. Most instructors were just forced to close up shop and find some other way to pay the bills. What ended up saving Japan's native martial traditions as the 1870s turned into the 1880s were two distinct phenomena. First, the zeitgeist of the era began to shift away from the Western fervor of the 1870s. As Japan became more and more westernized, a growing number of Meiji intellectuals began to ask the most important question in modern Japanese history. How westernized can Japan be and still be Japan? That question really struck a nerve. The lack of pride in Japan's heritage, of interest in its art, history, literature, represented a very different kind of existential danger, but a very real one nonetheless, of complete cultural assimilation and cultural annihilation, a loss of distinct identity rather than political subjugation. So the trend of the times began to shift away from westernization, that's not to say Western ideas lost their currency, they did not, but the notion that everything Western was just blanket better than everything Japanese was no longer accepted as gospel truth. Native arts, native literature started to return to vogue as a way of reasserting Japanese-ness. At the same time, a new idea entered Japan, the notion of sports. Now, I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen a game or two in their day, but sports in the 19th century were in some ways a very different beast from what you see today. 
People have always played games, of course, but organized play with clearly defined rules and leagues and tournaments and trophies, not to mention the whole idea of the professional athlete, those were invented in the 19th century. Put simply, the goal of athletics during the 19th century was not just to exercise, but to use exercise to instill a specific set of virtues. Competition, discipline, being goal and team-oriented rather than an individualist, and of course, prizing physical ability and fitness. High school courses named physical education are a holdover from these very notions. The idea is that you don't just learn how to exercise, but develop certain kind of traits from that practice. Sports were supposed to bring out the best in people, to show their qualities and the qualities of their community. This, for example, is the time period when Henry Spalding described baseball as the ultimate display of American character and virtues, and when Europeans began to consider a revival of the ancient practice of the Olympic Games in order to provide countries with a peaceful competitive outlet. Speaking of peace, sports were also seen as, in some sense, an extension of war. As far back as the very early 1800s, the victor of the Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington, is said to have quipped that the battles of tomorrow are won or lost on the playing fields of children today. After all, the same ethics that sports are supposed to teach are pretty desirable for soldiers to have, and at the same time, sports provide an outlet for nations to compete against each other. Indeed, anybody who scoffs at the idea that sports can be a stand-in for war should watch two European national soccer teams play. European and American visitors to Japan brought with them the idea of sports. The Yokohama Foreign Settlement, established by the Unequal Treaties, included an athletic club. Now, this idea of sport was initially very foreign. Sumo was a form of entertainment and not something average people did, and of course, martial training for samurai did involve notions of personal self-improvement, but it was not about competition, it was about learning how to fight. However, the idea caught on very quickly in Japan. One of our very first episodes in this podcast was about one of Japan's earliest baseball teams, and how a bunch of Japanese high schoolers shellacked some Americans at baseball. And incidentally, that story still has not been made into the feel-good movie of the summer, and I don't understand why. Come on, guys. Starting in the 1880s, some in Japan began to grasp that martial traditions could be given a shot in the arm by combining them with European notions of sport. Those of you familiar with the story will not be surprised that this is the point when an extremely important character will enter our story, Kano Jigoro. Kano Jigoro was born in 1860 to a peasant family which had become wealthy thanks to one of the most common forms of secondary employment for peasants, sake brewing. The money from the sake business gave the Kano family the extra cash to send Jigoro, their third son, to school, initially to study the Confucian masters and, after 1868, to study imported Western ideas. The family even arranged for him to have a private English tutor. Kano's facility with English would, in the future, make him a popular cultural ambassador to the West. And yet, young Kano's life was not without frustrations. First, his mother died when he was nine, his father, distraught and wanting a fresh start, 
moved the family to Tokyo. Second, Kano, while quite brilliant, was somewhat lacking in terms of physical gifts. Indeed, at 5 feet 2 inches and all of just over 90 pounds, or 1.57 meters and 41 kilograms for those of you who are of the metric persuasion, young Kano Jigoro was not what you would call physically imposing. However, Kano's father just happened to be friends with a former samurai named Nakai Baisei, who until 1868 had served as a bodyguard to the Tokugawa shoguns. Nakai, learning that Kano Jigoro wished to become stronger, told him of one of the old skills that had been taught to young samurai, jujutsu, the use of joint throws and locks to toss an opponent to the ground. In addition to demonstrating a few moves for the young man, Nakai explained to him that the practice was good exercise, and could even let a little stick of a man like Kano throw a much bigger opponent. Kano was intrigued, but Nakai refused to teach him more, saying that the practice, though interesting, was now outmoded, and there were far better things he could spend his time on. Pick up baseball if you're that desperate to get in shape, kid. Kano, however, was not deterred, and began to look for a different teacher. In his search, he found that quite a few samurai who had been proficient in jujutsu had turned their skills to a new field. They'd become bone setters who used their skills to engage in a form of physical therapy instead of using them to chuck armored foes to the ground. Kano eventually found one such bone setter who was prepared to take up instructing jujutsu again. His search eventually brought him to Fukuda Hachinosuke a former samurai who agreed to teach this strange young lad who wanted to waste his time on outmoded samurai ideas instead of learning something useful. By the late 1870s, Kano was splitting his time between his courses at Tokyo Imperial University and learning jujutsu. Kano appreciated both the exercise itself and the way Fukuda taught. His approach was all about forcing students to apply techniques in practice against resisting opponents rather than against pliant ones just going along with what's happening. Fukuda also encouraged experimentation, which is why when Kano came across a Western magazine describing wrestling techniques, he decided to try one out on the floor, the fireman's carry, which essentially involves moving perpendicular to your opponent, getting below them, and then slinging them over your back and dumping them headfirst on the ground. That technique, now with the Japanese name kataguruma, or shoulder wheel, is still part of the judo repertoire, though unsurprisingly, given the whole drop someone on their head thing, it is banned in several variations of tournament judo. So when the zeitgeist turned yet again and the mad craze for westernization passed and an interest in traditional culture began to return, Kano was well positioned to benefit. For example, in 1879, when Japan entertained its highest-profile diplomatic visit so far, former President of the United States Ulysses Grant, who is in the middle of a world tour, Kano was part of a demonstration of jujutsu put on for Grant, in the home of Meiji-era businessman Shibusawa Eiichi, who had founded Japan's first national bank. Kano's practice and his growing reputation paid off. Eventually, he received certifications of mastery from two different schools of jujutsu, Tenshin Shinyo and Kito styles, if you're curious. His academic studies also went well. After graduating from Tokyo Imperial University, 
he received a teacher's appointment to the Gakushuin, or Peer's School, the all-male equivalent of the school at which Tsuda Umeko was teaching English. With the cash from his teaching gig and nine local high school students interested in learning from him, Kano went to a local Buddhist temple, Eishoji in eastern Ueno if you're curious, and rented out a space that was all of 12 tatami mats in area, a little under 20 square meters or 200 square feet. Kano named his new small school the Kodokan, ko meaning lecture, do meaning way, and kan meaning hall. He also gave his unique blend of styles a new name, borrowing from an older term used by some offshoots of Kitoryu Jujutsu. Judo, meaning literally the way of softness or the way of flexibility. To this day, the Kodokan remains the headquarters of the International Judo Federation, though it's a little bit bigger than 12 tatami mats. It's now an eight-story building with five separate training spaces. Kano's biggest innovation, however, wasn't really his training techniques, his willingness to borrow from Western wrestling, or his savvy acquisition of pricey Tokyo real estate. It was his justification for why judo was a worthwhile subject of study. Kano aligned his training with sport. He went through the technical manuals of schools he'd studied and ruthlessly eliminated any technique which could not be performed in a sporting setting. Judo was not about learning how to break someone's arm or yank their junk off. That's not really sporting behavior. After this editing process was done, Kano had a list of techniques that could be practiced and performed at full power while an opponent was attempting to resist them with a reasonable assurance that neither person would end up hurt. These techniques could allow Judo to become a sport with clear rules, scoring, and tournaments. The training necessary to compete in these tournaments would instill practitioners, or judoka in Japanese, with all those great sporting virtues. Hard work, teamwork, humility, discipline, and the like. For Kano, this self-cultivation that came with practice, this notion borrowed from Western sports, and also from the traditions of the samurai, was the most essential goal. In 1918, giving a talk on the origins of judo, he stressed, quote, Don't think about what to do after you become strong. I have repeatedly stressed that the ultimate goal of judo is to perfect the self and to make a contribution to society. In the old days, jujutsu practitioners focused their efforts on becoming strong and did not give too much consideration to how they could put that strength to use. Similarly, judo practitioners of today do not make sufficient efforts to understand the ultimate objective of judo. Too much emphasis is placed on the process rather than the objective, and many only desire to become strong and be able to defeat their opponents. Of course, I am not negating the importance of wanting to become strong or skilled, however, it must be remembered that this is just part of the process for a greater objective. The worth of all people is dependent on how they spend their lives making contributions." End quote. Judo was the first of a new generation of martial traditions which emphasized sporting competition over martial training, and which justified that competition with an ethic of personal development and self-improvement. It was, in many ways, the first truly modern martial art. It will not be the last. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. 
Special thanks this week to Ryan Schmitto, Marielle Schmidt, Bob Meyer, and Tejas Raj for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Fist of Legend Part 3.